Good morning. I'm doing all the things. It's not working. <laughs> so here's here's what I resort to. If you can hear me, clap once. If you can hear me, clap twice. Go ahead and take your seats, everybody. <laughs> I will always be an elementary school teacher. Never not be that thing. Okay. Hi, everybody. Good, mor good morning. I'm going to start out this morning with a confession that some of you already know, so it's not really a true confession. Um, but some of you might feel shocked to learn this. And I noticed some nerves as I prepare myself to tell you that I do not like Brene Brown. Oh, I know! I'm sorry! Do I own every single Brene Brown book? Yes. <laughs> Except her most recent one, because I just haven't brought myself to buy it yet. Um, if you don't know who Brene Brown is, I'm shocked. But in case, I will give you a quick bio. She is like a very famous um, researcher and professor, professor of social work. She focuses on a variety of things in that field. But she best, she's best known for her research on vulnerability and shame. Um, and it's, it's probably not actually true that I like Brene Brown. I should clarify, because I am inspired by many of the things that Brene says in a lot of ways, and I'm sure she's a very nice person, although she scares me a little bit. Um, I do, though, distance myself from her from time to time for a few reasons. One of those reasons is because um, I know those two things, vulnerability and shame, better than anyone else in the whole wide world, so she can't tell me anything about it. Um, and I think I just get tired of what she has to say. Other times, she makes a point uh, very plainly that I just don't want to hear. And so I um, usually respond with a firm, no, thank you. And I've said more than once, no, I have not listened to Brene's most podcast because she told me something I wasn't ready to hear. And so we're taking <laughs> Because the truth is, I have been a vulnerable <laughs> and feeling, highly feeling person my whole life. Uh, in school, jobs, wherever I am, at whatever time I am in my life. Uh, this isn't to say that I wasn't the only person in any of the places that I'm at um, at the time, the only person feeling things, but I seem to be the one um, incapable of keeping my feelings under wraps, playing out an old stereotype of women. Um, I always seem to be the hysterical one. I have had a reputation as a crier. Um, but also, when I have feelings about something, I have always felt that that is important data to consider about. And this posed a problem <laughs> in some spaces that I have been in. Feelings are not always quantifiable, cannot be easily captured on a pivot table or whatever manner of recording. I don't even know what a pivot table is, but I know that we used them one time at a job I was in. Um, yeah, feelings just aren't easily recorded. Um, and so it's hard to actually capture it as data. And so ultimately, I was unwelcome in some spaces, and I have left those spaces. And when I encountered Brene's work and her conclusion that vulnerability is pretty much the answer to everything, I thought, duh. <laughs> and have felt frustrated <laughs> when it has been received as groundbreaking <laughs> Um, and everyone's like, well, Brene says, 
that allowing employees to be vulnerable about how they're feeling about a project keeps businesses performing well. And then I think, excuse me? You mean I was right? <laughs> and then I end up feeling like garbage and then I'm like, well, Brene, whatever, okay. And here's the thing, I know that my experiences are simply a snapshot of the harm that patriarchal norms and values have harmed, have had on us all. And I think that I realized in the last few weeks that this pervasive, pervasiveness of these harmful ideas can't even be broken down by Brene, and that's really where I was feeling hurt. Because I did listen to her on a different podcast, not her own, we're still on a break, <laughs> and she talked about how awful it was to still consistently be belittled by colleagues and have her research categorized specifically towards certain audiences like the self-help crowd and not as serious psychological research simply because she is a woman. And I had this moment where I thought, yeah, you played the game, Brene, and you lost because it's not winnable. And I felt mad at her for going along with it, for cheapening the power of vulnerability and trying to prove it in a patriarchal system. Vulnerability is this really hard pill to swallow for a lot of people because of its tie to femininity. Being vulnerable is weak. Showing how we feel is weak. Those are things women do. In fact, they cannot help it. But men, men are supposed to be strong. And I see this in my office every day, hour by hour. Men who haven't been able to access their feelings their entire lives, so they're actually ill in adulthood because they're just completely weighed down by the enormity of a lifetime of unprocessed grief and anger and even joy that has been inaccessible. Women who hate crying so much because they know it's a sign of weakness, they don't want to burden their partners, their families, or even me in the moment with their shame. Vulnerability with our thoughts and feelings is dangerous because it feels like we're in the same position as those that we have labeled as vulnerable people those that are oppressed, those without, those that are marginalized. When someone is without any means, money, or power, their thoughts and feelings are what is left to offer. And so if we are vulnerable, then we might be considered other, like them. And that is frightening for a lot of people. And it's interesting to me that those beliefs are so ingrained in us, particularly in our own faith tradition, because our story relies on both the vulnerable and vulnerability. That we love the vulnerable and that we love best by being vulnerable ourselves. Let's read Luke 1, 39 through 50 together to see if you're getting that too. I'm going to be reading from the NRSV, if that is helpful to you. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, 
And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And I'm going to finish her song, actually. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. This is the word of the Lord. I accidentally printed the sermon on cardstock this morning, so it feels like... <laughs> just a little awkward to turn the pages. Ah, I don't even know where the first one went. There it is. <laughs> okay. Oh, Lord. Okay. Um, so in these familiar words for Mary, for some of us, they were not familiar to me until just a couple of years ago. She marvels at the idea that she is the one chosen to carry God's child. She uses this really interesting language about God's mightiness and strength, words that had clear on connotations then and now of um, like an image comes to, to mind when we think of these words, but she then breaks down some of those for us. She distinguishes God's might and strength from what we might think it means, because then she says it's God's might and strength that brings down the powerful, scatters the proud. I thought, well, what is might and strength? What, is, what are these things if not power? And Mary tells us it's the lowly, the hungry. It's the tiny baby in her belly. Something a little bit different than what we're used to thinking. In Wholehearted Faith, Rachel Held Evans' last book. I knew I was going to cry when I brought up her name. She says, it is nearly impossible to believe God shrinking down to the size of a zygote, implanted in the soft lining of a woman's womb, God growing fingers and toes, God kicking and hiccuping in utero, God inching down the birth canal and entering this world covered in blood, perhaps into the steady waiting arms of a midwife, God crying out in hunger, God reaching for his mother's breasts. God totally relaxed, eyes closed, his chubby little arms raised over his head in a posture of complete trust. God resting in his mother's lap. God became vulnerable. God was humbled, got choosing to put down roots in a particular family at a particular time in a particular place. 
when I was reading that first chapter, I was like, oh my God, okay, all right, Rachel. Um, because it, like, it was just striking that I was reading those while reflecting an Advent on this, the opposite of strength, in my mind, the opposite of strength, but learning that what real strength is was God becoming this little baby. Mary makes us stop here in her story and takes a moment to reorient ourselves to God. God is strong and mighty. God will lift the lowly and scatter the powerful. And God is not even a fully developed little baby yet. And I think there are also two, there are really two levels of vulnerability happening here. Not only are we learning that God is, God's might is God's choice to become the most vulnerable thing, a little baby, but also that God chooses Mary to carry God's self into the world. God chooses a young woman, a young unmarried woman. In a time when women didn't have rights or power, God chooses a woman on the lowest rung of the ladder, the most vulnerable person, made even more vulnerable by becoming pregnant when unmarried. And in this passage, she is the one that tells us something new about God. In a scene where we only see characters that shouldn't have been allowed to speak, they have a voice about the most important thing to talk about at the time. The only man in the room, actually, Zechariah, was silenced week before because he got sassy with an angel about when he learned his wife was pregnant. Seriously, he doubted the mightiness of God and was like, sorry, you must be mistaken. My wife is very old. And the angel was like, oh, no more talking for you, and took his voice away. <laughs> it's his wife and the unborn baby in her belly that confirm the presence of Christ when Mary arrives. And we don't have a clue where Joseph is right now. Like, literally, we don't know. Some people think maybe he came with her, but he doesn't show up in the story at all. Some people think he took her as far as Nazareth and was like, go on your own the rest of the way to this very scary town. So great, cool, Joseph. So the two people that could have had power are gone in this story, completely silent. And so in this moment, when we're learning about the first and fleshed Christ, we're learning it from two vulnerable women and the babies in their bellies. And I thought of um, another vulnerable woman in scripture when I was reading this passage and thinking about this theme. Um, I thought of Hagar, the first person in scripture that has the audacity to name God a slave woman who is abused by her masters, but when she meets God, gives the name El Roi, the one who sees me. And now Mary, a poor woman who, given everything we know about her, is probably an outcast, is the first to define for, God, for us God in this way, to illustrate God by birthing Christ in flesh for us. It seems we have always been shown that it is the vulnerable, that will help us know God better. If we had been paying attention this whole time, Brene Brown wouldn't have anything to study, I think. Instead, we have simply made the same mistakes over and over and over again. We have looked to power, looked to the proud, and shamed the vulnerable. In this season of Advent, as we reflect on love this week, I think we have a couple of things we could consider. How our vulnerability might be an act of love towards others. Just 
as God's vulnerability was an act of love toward us. And that God loved and trusted us so much that God chose to come to the world as a little baby. And that the vulnerable among us are the ones that will lead us to God, show us new ways to encounter God, teach us more about God's character and nature, that God sees us, and that God's strength is in God's vulnerability and love. Amen. Okay. If you would like to turn to your Lord's Table liturgy. Ooh, gosh. Okay. As we draw closer to Jesus' birth, as we seek to hear the angels and follow the shepherds, we would tell of the revelation of your mystery in Jesus. Jesus was born to live, to be, to die with us. Jesus was raised, so we would know that death has no power. Jesus will come, your final yes to all our doubts and worries. As long as, sorry, as we long to be awakened, say yes to your great love. We gather at the table praying you will pour out your spirit on us and the feast prepared. Though broken, the bread can make us strong enough to go and be the gift among other needs, sharing your blessings of love and grace, swaddling the most vulnerable we meet with Jesus' compassion. Though just a cup, your grace fills us with the courage to say yes to the Spirit, which beckons us to share peace with all the broken, to learn the language of hope from the children in our midst and draw closer to the baby born, not into wealth and power, but into poverty and weakness. The table of the Lord is open for all who seek to live in the love of Christ.